1: Dorter! What a strike! What's a screamer! It's on! And
2: a fantastic goal! Arsenal back in here's Limpa. Lines it up. Finds the net. Arsenal in front.
1: We've got Ozil. Messi, Ozil. I just don't think you understand. We think he's pretty good. He plays less than he should. We've got Mesut Ozil. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. He does play less than he should, but he is quite a good player when he does play. So we'll get to that later. That's coming later. Housekeeping. Later this week, another player that everybody loves and has unanimous support throughout the supporters is Hector Bellerin, and we will be diving deep on Hector Bellerin, doing an In the Spotlight episode on him uh, later this week. That's coming on the Patreon side of things. And for those of you who signed up, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. For those of you who haven't. We love you anyway, so it's totally fine. Uh, we will be telling you about a great craft beer service you may have heard of later in this podcast called Beer 52. But now it is time to talk Arsenal 3, West Ham 1, just a run-of-the-mill, straightforward battering of West Ham at the Emirates for uh, Unai Emery's first victory. We are here with Paul. He is on Twitter at Paws My Pants. Hello, Paws. Woohoo. hoo uh, Clive is on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Indeed. And uh, Tim is here. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. All right, guys, so this is a fascinating match, and I'm actually really looking forward to this podcast because uh, there was a first victory for Emery, and yet yet it feeds into everything I love about football, which is it makes me uneasy, it makes me worried, it makes me nervous, uh, it gives me things to be critical of, and so that that is just wheelhouse territory for me. But let's start with the lineup. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to get to the Ozil discussion later in the podcast, so we can just leave aside for the moment that he was ill. Um, we'll get to that. And that he was not involved. But Tim, it was uh, another start for Guendouzi, another start for Aubameyang, reluctance to put Lacazette on the pitch with him, as as the manager had said. Any surprises for you with how he sent him out?
3: Yeah, the only surprise for me was that Lacazette didn't start. I, I was I was kind of expecting that. The rest of it shaped up pretty much as I expected. I didn't think Granite Jacker was going to get dropped. Um, a kind of a an early theme um, that's developing with Emery is yes, he is quite happy to hook players um, pretty early on. If it's not working, uh, the frequency with which he's done that suggests he's still getting a feel for his lineup really. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't seem like he's going to hold that against players um so he's he's taken a couple of players off at half time and you know they've survived for the next match for example uh, this time Gendouzi got hooked a little bit early and we hadn't seen that in the in the first two games so this really seems like total blank slate complete meritocracy you know I'm still fiddler, fiddling with the lineup a little bit um, I'm not going to hold anything against you. If if I have to hook you at half time, it's not because I think you're a terrible player or a terrible person. Um, it's just because I'm trying to sort things out a little bit here. So I, I didn't necessarily think Xhaka um, would get dropped. Um, I, and besides which, this is usually the sort of game that really suits him. And I thought that that was borne out by his performance, which I thought was very good. I, I did half expect Torreira to come in at this point. But that said, Genduzi had done nothing to get dropped, quite the opposite. So that wasn't a huge shock to me, even though I probably would have bet on Torreira. Um, you know, I didn't draw any breath when I saw it. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose the, the one part of the lineup I was a little bit surprised by was uh, Iwobi playing instead of Lacazette. Again, I think, you know, Iwobi played really well at Chelsea. But Iwobi usually plays well against Chelsea, and I, I wasn't quite as sure that this was his type of game. Um, but nevertheless, like I say, Emery's willing to give give everyone a fair go. Um, the only I, I defense saying, of him,
1: Tim, I'd say just quickly, is we did mm, almost nothing on his side of the pitch in general. I, I mean, yeah, everything yeah, yeah. was down the right.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but I, I really expected Lacazette to come in, actually, and for Abamyang to play on the left. I think I'd had in my mind, and again, there's no actual evidence for this yet because this is the first game of this type that we'd had. But I had in my mind that for these games, we'd, you know, we'd go a bit, not gung, gung-ho, but, you know, Ramsey 8, Ozil 10, Abamyang, wide left, Lacazette up front, you know, just throw out all the big guns um, because I think... I, basically I don't think you can really balance this team unless you play a back three to me, that's the only way you can balance this team. And I don't think Emery's going to do that. So in, in lieu of um, actual balance, which might take a couple of windows to achieve, I think for these kind of games, just throwing all the attackers on is actually a pretty de- and letting them work it out is a pretty decent way to go. Um, but again, that, that was just a preconception on my part and it's not been borne out so far. Um, I would be a bit disappointed if Lacazette didn't start against Cardiff. I think he's earned it. I think he's, you know, if we're talking blank slates and meritocracies, I think he's made an impact off the With bench, Aubameyang particularly or instead couple. of Aubameyang? Uh, with. Okay. With. Um, against Cardiff, yeah. With. I'd, I'd play Aubameyang on the left if he doesn't want to go to up front. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's hard to be surprised by the starting lineups because he's changed them so much, even in preseason, and because we don't really have a read on him yet. Um, but yeah, I, I think like, Laca- uh, it instead of Lacazette was the only one that made me kind of cock an eyebrow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I do like a cocked eyebrow. Um, so <laughs> Clive, I, I guess, you know, the thing that I was, one of the things that I will just say, if I can sort of sum up the, um, the feeling in the arsenal world right now, you know, if you kind of want to look at what the zeitgeist is or, you know, whatever word is actually appropriate there. It seems like despite the win, there, there was a lot of hand-wringing about this performance. And I think some of it is just that we were squinting through two losses to see the plan coming together. And we could see little indications that maybe it was starting to happen for this team. And then in this game, we didn't see, I think, the the real fruition that we hoped we would see based on the, the little um, suggestions of improvement that we saw in the first two games. So... I'm curious why that didn't happen. And one of the things that really bothered me about this game is just the total lack of control it felt like we had over the game. Um, The press didn't seem to really give us the impetus, nor did we seem to have control and possession. So for you, if you had to look at what was going wrong in that first half, where we were really lacking control and why that happened, what do you think was the the principal cause of that?
2: Uh, uh, Lots of different things, right? So I think what we're seeing at the moment is a... Implementation issue, right? We're implementing things in pieces, but not fully. So if you go back to the city game, we focused massively on playing out from the back. So we played in the (laughs) the centre halves racked up about 400 passes each, and our goalkeeper had more touches than anybody else. So we were playing in the wrong areas. We almost like we had phase one of playing out from the back, but didn't have a lot else. And then we brought on the substitutes. They had a bit of a go towards the end, lost the game. Thank you very much. Get on the bus. Second game, what did we see a little bit more? We saw playing out from the back, but we weren't overly obsessed with it. And so we were much more selective. And because of that, we got more progression. So we got a bit of phase two. So now we know we've got a bit of pattern. And then, but what we did in that Chelsea game, we had a super high line. So our line was too high. So we messed up. implementation. high line, too high, messed up. Chelsea in behind, we're now coming from behind. Lose the game, 3-2. Fine. But we started to see in the Chelsea game was a bit more of this right-hand side with Mkhitaryan and Bellamy. And we saw a lot of success on the cutbacks. OK, so we've seen some offensive pattern. A line was too high in the first half. A line was probably too deep in the second half. So we got an implementation issue. right? So, and what do we see in the West Ham game? And each game has its own context. And so I went to game on Saturday, and I've walked in with my couple of bets I've got on. My bet five nil, I bet five 0 I bet. I've done. I've gone in there fully, fully carlsberg up, ready to go. You Give should have listened to nil. Paul
1: because he hit the scoreline nail on the head uh, in the preview <laughs> pod. Said three one, and was was spot on.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I'm not listening to you. and no way I'm listening to Paul. Right? To be fair.
1: <laughs> You've got your priorities in order, my friend.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, well, I'm well Paul picking that one because I didn't. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, and so, and so, we've all walked in thinking, okay, Chelsea, City, West Ham are getting it, and that wasn't the case, right? So, what do we see? Again, we see a bit more selective play out from the back. We see our fullbacks super high on a home game, we want to win, but guess what? Our centre midfield are not spreading out to the fullbacks to cover them. So now we've got an issue with our centre midfield, and Kendoza's not getting out there on the right-hand side. He's making slide tackles. He's running behind Philippe F- Anderson, and he's running behind him looking slower than Chaka because that guy can run and he can play. And suddenly, we've seen another problem develop. we got problems around our full-back areas, and our two in front of the back four were not really coached or pointed to get out there. And so we looked massively exposed on the counter-attack. We all, So the, we had our back twos defending, we had our centre two trying to get midfield control, but when anything broke down, we were very, very vulnerable. So what we have is an implementation issue. We're seeing pieces of the plan come together each week, and then we're finding out things that are going wrong. And then when I see that, and what fans do when they see that, is they then focus on the individuals that they feel are not doing the job to make the fan feel less nervous about what he's watching. And I felt that happened at the weekend, particularly down Beller inside, uh, where I thought he was tremendous going one way, but left to be exposed going the other. And I'm not sure it was all his own fault. So at the moment, Elliot, and to summarize, we have an implementation issue. We are implementing parts of a plan, one week, even one half at a time. And, but I'm afraid there's a limit to this because what he wants to do and how he wants us exposed we do not have the pace in centre mid or at centre half to play this high risk, high reward game that Emery's uh, promoting.
1: Yeah, I mean, this this game for me highlighted more than any game I can remember in recent memory, and maybe I'm just forgetting one. How limited the athleticism in this team is in terms of just running power and pace in midfield, and you know, watching Gendouzi lose the ball and then cannot keep up with Felipe Anderson as he's running by him Shaka had a couple situations where that happened as well Ramsey has a great engine but he's not a, he's not a, a quick player not a fast he, runner and we just lack that he's a, not a
2: sprinter he's no not he's a sprinter. not
1: and you know it's funny it kind of reminds me when Liverpool were willing to pay all that money for Oxlade-Chamberlain I was thrilled that they were willing to take him off our hands at that price at that point and I couldn't really understand why Klopp was doing that, but it makes a lot more sense when I think about it now because just another hard-running athlete in the middle of the pitch, which is what he's all about. Um, You know what I will say? If I had to come up with a theory, Paul, and I want you to debunk it for me because I'm sure you will, as to why this game maybe felt less comfortable and less encouraging than the losses did. In the losses, when we pressed... We looked pretty good in transition, and that was encouraging because I think a lot of us have been wanting to see Arsenal play more on the front foot, be an effective pressing team. We see the other big clubs doing it and succeeding with it, and we want to do it. The problem was in this game, when West Ham sat off us at all and we had to build the play from the back, it looked very disjointed, very convoluted. There was a lot of direct passing that resulted in nothing, a lot of very unsophisticated play in build up when we weren't able to create transitions. So for you, is the problem here maybe just that what was good about us in the first two games came off transitions and we had fewer transition opportunities in this game and what became clear is that we don't have an, another way to build play when we're not transitioning?
4: Yeah, um, I, I think I'm going to say this. Uh, I'll say this in my words, but but I, I think it's pretty copacetic with what you were saying. To me, the two things I I thought I was going to see in this game was really good, intense pressing up front, counter-pressing. And we saw basically none of that or none of that that got our teeth into them at any stage. Um, I think that's a huge piece of why Bellerin's wing looked so exposed Um, and why we were uh, watching the athleticism of our midfield and our defenders running backwards against you know, speedsters like Anderson. That's not really what you want to be assessing in a game. Um, and like our defense at the moment is really supposed to start with this counterpress and we didn't really see any of it of any great effect. I mean, we did some of it. I went back and had another look at it and we did actually tr- begin to do some pressing, but it wasn't particularly intense. It certainly wasn't effective. Um, <clears throat> we had almost no turnovers in near their final third. Going the other way, going the other way, working from the back, we play, We didn't actually play out from the back uh, to any great degree. Maybe that was just the paucity of opportunities to play out from the back, but it wasn't a big factor. And maybe we saw much more of that with uh, City and Chelsea, just because they played a lot more in our end. Uh, we recovered the ball and played it out, but it. It, it was kind of this wonky game where the two things I thought we were going, you know, in, in the 20th minute, um, check kicks it long just because of the options in front of him, and the crowd cheered, uh, which is really odd because we weren't actually under that much pressure at the back. There weren't really any scary moments. And it's like, uh, I don't know what to make of that. We hadn't been doing as much of it as we were supposed to be doing it. And like, we're just a very nervous bunch of kittens generally. So it, I I don't think the people saw the game they thought they were going to see. I didn't see the game I thought I was going to see. It was just a bit of a hot mess going back from one end to the other. There was no continuity, no continuity of possession from our side. And kind of the the top and tail of it, the front counterpress was ineffective or largely non-existent and for whatever reasons we weren't actually building a lot from the middle from the back Mm -hmm. and so it was this kind of it was a very Arsene Wenger not the good Arsene Wenger era but a very Arsene Wenger era game game. you know I think some people thought we were going to be more conservative with our fullbacks and it's quite clear you know the tactic is to cheat by turning the dial up full and, and push the two fullbacks forward so it made this very lopsided. Everybody's forward, but the counter press isn't working. Oh my God, we're all exposed, going backwards. Kind of game.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, that was that was interesting, but not very fulfilling. Well, I, I think, um, go ahead. Yep. I, I was just going to make a really quick point. I
3: think uh, one thing to kind of note, and I admit I'm doing this in hindsight, this is not what I was saying on Friday, for example, but this West Ham game was a bit like beginning the season all over again. And not just yeah. because we'd lost the first two games, it's the first game of this type that Emery's had, even stretching back to pre season. And I know it's pre season, but you're playing PSG, Chelsea, Lazio, teams like that. Um, basically we've been playing elite teams uh, since he walked through the door and and, have, and that's what we'd have been preparing for. We'd have been preparing for Chelsea and Manchester City all pre-season. This is the first time we've had this type of challenge. I think, Then, don't get me wrong, that really, really showed because I don't think we really knew what we were doing other than Mkhitaryan and Bellerin combining. I don't think we ever really looked like we knew what we were doing until maybe Lacazette and Torreira came on. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but it's, it, it's, it was kind of a,
1: I, I a have real
3: th- beginning, you know?
1: Well, I have a theory about that and I want to uh, pose it to you, but I'm also going to correct you on one thing. Never admit that you weren't saying that on Friday. No one knows. Just admit that you knew it in advance. enhances your credibility and only improves the podcast. Um, well, one thing to Paul's point that I just want to point out. Scott, who uh, I'm not going to have time today, unfortunately, to bring Scott in and, and do a, a stats section. But uh, I can just rip his stats right out of the Ars blog by the numbers column as if he's here. And one thing he highlights that I think is really interesting. We basically flipped our tackles and interception numbers under Emory from what we did under Arson. And so we attempted 32 tackles um, against West Ham uh, and just six interceptions, which is basically the reverse of how we played under Arson. The problem in the West Ham game is of those 32 tackles, only 15 were successful, and we were dribbled past 17 times. Uh, Aaron Ramsey alone was dribbled past four times. And so... This becomes the issue, is when you are pressing, and if you are going for more tackles instead of sitting back and intercepting, you are going to be in a situation where it's a bit high risk, high reward, obviously. And then he followed up by posting a statistic that uh, Lemon Watcher at DeepXG posted on Twitter, and this is really interesting. No manager has his players foul to snuff out counters more than Pep Guardiola. In 2017-18, 7.6% of Man City's opponents' possessions from open play turnovers ended in a foul, the highest rate in the last five Premier League seasons. So City press you, and they suffocate you. But if you beat it, they are not above hauling you down. And there was a a point later in the game where uh, they got by our press, and Ramsey had a chance to haul someone down and didn't. Um, I I can't remember the exact minute, but I I think people probably remember it if you think back. Um, and and that's something that I think is really interesting. And if we are going to take this approach, we're going to have to do it. So I, I do want to get a, a, a thought from you, Tim. But before I do that, I am getting a begging emoji from Clive to come back in on this point. So, <laughs> Clive, um, hit me with this with this uh, wisdom that you have stored up in you. Uh,
2: I know you fade out for the last two years when I keep talking about pace and power. But why just really the last two it's years? <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's
2: about it's about our ability to sprint. And those Man City players that do those fouls are Sterling, Sane, Silva, and they are sprinters, the and runner. they are firemen. And they sprint at the ball early. and never get booked because they're the little number 10s, right? They never get booked. And so they do it early, pick you up and say, cheers, thanks a lot, where all the big monsters get back into their holes. What we can't do is we can't sprint to put out the fires. So we have these runners that do a lot of kilometres, but we're not sharp. Right? And that's what needs to change. We need to have players that can get to these spots, either put out fires or get to fires and, and create duels. And we have got, you nailed it, our dribble pass stats are... Incredible. We we've got to be one of the t- bottom three, I'd say, bottom three, without even looking, bottom three in the league, and other teams are encouraged. West Ham are encouraged. They were encouraged playing against us. I was at the game, looking down from up on high on the halfway line, and they fancied it. And the reason why they fancied it is they knew they could beat us to the ball and run away from us. And until we fix that, we have a limit to what Emery can deliver. I promise you that, mate.
1: Yeah, I think that's totally fair, and and. You know, it is going to be an issue then. I mean, we heard this debate between Carragher and Neville. Uh, If you saw the video, if you haven't, you should watch it. The question of should the coach stick to his philosophy or should the coach amend his philosophy to suit his players? I think it's kind of 50-50 now, right? I mean, if you don't have the players to play the way you want to, you just physically don't have the characteristics to do it, at some point, it's suicide not to amend your philosophy. We don't know it yet, but it's certainly something you have to wonder about. I still have a question to pose to Tim, but now Paul is giving me a begging emoji. (laughs) So Paul, why don't you come in and and disrupt the flow of the podcast with your wisdom?
4: Look, having created all this, or had my share of creating this, uh, this concern and turmoil over it. I did think I began to saw the, see the future just at the end of the game. It was about the 88th minute. And we have this thing where Socrates pings a ball. He, he's quite high up on the lift. He pings a ball across diagonally to uh, Bellerin, who loses the header. Um, but at that point... Um, what's-his-face, Torreira and Mkhitaryan have drifted into the the Hector channel that we got kind of pummeled all all game on. So they're kind of covering that area, partly why Torreira is on. They recover the ball, and then Torreira does this thing where he pings four quick passes, side-side, forward, uh, back. And I'm thinking this is a bit anticlimactic, kind of my my mood's dropping just ever so slightly. But it's really quick, and suddenly he gets the ball back from at uh, the centre-back, looks upfield, uh, pings it up to Mkhitaryan, who pings it up to Bellerin, who's charging up the wing, and we put in this cross that could have been the cross that that Danny Welbeck buried, but it's actually a few minutes early. But it, it's a very similar play. And you suddenly realise that what we did was we, we, we defended upfield, we scrambled, we swarmed, we got the ball back, we ping, ping, ping and shook their players out of positions and pinged a forward. And to me, that's what I thought I was going to see more of in this game. I think Terreira is absolutely key. You see him popping into these positions. He pings that ball, short, quick passes. And you'll see that there's a couple of uh, pep tactical videos about how important it is over on the wings to ping really short, quick passes between, between people. Yeah, it's a short great video. Short distances, not yep. long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep and that's what i saw on this thing it was nothing passes
1: but i mean we've all seen Can I how make a point, quickly though? yeah <laughs> so right after the the period that you're describing like within 60 seconds of it they were wide open in our area and slid a ball right across the corridor of uncertainty that should have been tapped in for the equalizer so uh, whatever whatever yeah. you're describing it certainly didn't result in a positive outcome in that moment no it no, I did
4: think- in, in in sorry in that sequence of play right through to to when it was completed, um, it achieved its effect, right? Um, In terms of gathering the ball, snuffing out the counter-attack, pinging it around, putting us through on the counter. What we need to be able to do is time and again turn the ball over in the final third like a Liverpool or like a City does. But in those couple of minutes, there's about a two-minute segment in which I felt I saw the the future, and it's why I want Torreira there. We probably saw two or three times in that game, after terrera came on where he just kind of pops up in the passing lane of the opposition and they don't know why he's there and it's like you can see him but he just pops in really quickly he's in the lane and they hit it straight to him and he that's what i've seen him do in in the games and clips i've seen before he's really good at popping up out of fucking nowhere and snaffling that ball up and kicking you off i i, I I absolutely want to see him start game would, after game after this.
1: I would certainly love to hear uh, Emery's reasoning as to why he wasn't started in this game. I mean, I, I can understand if you're trying to work him in slowly and he's new and he's being integrated. You know, I guess the thought process is that West Ham would sit deeper and he wanted two players in his midfield that maybe are a, a little better with a final ball or a line-breaking pass. But, I, you know, I, I think we saw, to your point, just how much better we look when he's on the pitch. Now, having said that... Um, you know, to me, Tim, one of the issues we saw in this game is the problem we have with the sort of Aaron Ramsey Mesut conundrum, and I, I want to get your take on this because in transition, when we're pressing, when we get the ball off them, you can absolutely see what Aaron Ramsey brings, and you know he he's right there running into the box, he's he's you know, on the front foot looking to create opportunities in transition, but in build-up, he's not a number ten, he's just not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not that a lot of teams necessarily play with a number 10. We've covered that. But I felt that when we were building from the back, when we were in possession and trying to build the play, that Ramsey struggled to be influential there. Um, and you look at Aaron Ramsey in the game, and he had two passes to Aubameyang. He had one pass to Iwobi. Um, You know, he, he had uh, quite a few more, actually, to Lacazette once he came on because Lacazette will drop a little deeper. But for you, is one of the challenges in this game, in terms of our buildup, the fact that, we really did miss that mesodozo that that uh, chance creator, that playmaker. Because Aaron Ramsey, for all of his running and his energy and his his uh, sort of secondary runs into the box, you know, call him more of a Deli Alley type, if you don't mind the taste in your mouth. Um, mm. That we lacked a playmaker in the side.
3: I think we did, but maybe not necessarily in the number ten role. Maybe deeper um, in the pitch. You know, it's it's so. Like, like you said, not a lot of teams play with that kind of number 10 anymore because they've moved them back. They've moved them back into the kind of more into the number eight spot. We did it with a fella called Santi Cazorla. And um, I think one of the problems with our midfield is it doesn't really have any eights in it. Um, it's it's got a few fours and a few tens but not a lot of I mean and that's why I think genduzi has been uh, a bit of a feature because he is someone who can play that slightly more connecting role and so what Ramsey has had in the past is either so like Ramsey's two best seasons certainly in front of goal have been playing in front of Arteta and Jacka, and that's not that's not a coincidence. He's had basically two kind of playmaking, you know, deep-lying playmaker types behind him, which means that he doesn't have to get involved in the build-up. He can concentrate on that off-ball stuff. Mm-hmm. And I I always felt as well that given some time, him and Wilshere could have been a really good uh, combination, actually, in a midfield three, because I think uh, we didn't really see it ever develop because I don't think it ever had enough time because they they didn't it seemed like they wouldn't fit into the same midfield, but I thought they would eventually because what you've got, you've got two guys who are number eights, but completely different styles of number eight. So you've got Wilshire likes to dribble. He likes to carry the ball and uh, Ramsey likes to run off it. And, and I always thought that that was potentially quite a good mix. Yeah. What we're kind of missing there is that, that on the ball bit and be that a deep lying playmaker or preferably a dribbler, um someone who can advance the ball up the pitch basically. Um and I, I think that's what we missed a little bit. Jacques I thought Xhaka played well, but
1: yeah. You he know, let he let us in final third entry passes, just to your point from yeah. from building from deeper.
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I think you're right. I think Rams I've never been convinced by the idea that Rams is a number ten. I think he can play in a midfield with two number eights where he's the most advanced well, or the one that gets forward the most. That's how he plays for Wales. People say he plays as a number 10 for Wales. He doesn't play as a 10 for Wales. They, again, like most modern football teams, play with two eights. It's just he's the one that gets forward a little bit more and they have kind of Joe Ledley sat in there with him and Joe Ledley's a bit more of an on-the-ball playmaker type. And it, it's just the, the chemistry. I, I, Ramsey can play that position not necessarily as a 10, but as one of the more advanced eights if... But we don't He's have the other one. Complementary, exactly, exactly. <laughs> we haven't got that other piece. That midfield is still, for me, missing that kind of that connector role. And what it, what it all comes down to is we've still got a bit of a Santi Cazorla-sized hole yeah. um, in our midfield, quite frankly. And, you know, whether it's like a, a deep blind playmaker or someone who dribbles, personally, I'd, I'd really like a dribbler. Um, Could you move there, a just, Mkhitaryan think, into
1: that position or an Iwobi into that position instead of playing them in these th- sort of nominal I wide think, forward slots?
3: I, I think Iwobi's got more potential there. Um, I think Mikatarian's quite Good in the role he's being given which is not quite a right midfielder but in that kind of half space Emery doesn't play with wingers and that's why when we were all saying all summer why aren't we buying a winger why aren't we buying wide forwards he doesn't play with them uh, not in that traditional sense anyway he wants his wide forwards to come in into you know the half spaces that's what he did at PSG that's where he sat neymar and mbappe they weren't you know they weren't getting chalk on their boots um it's, it's almost a bit more like Pires and Lundberg at arsenal those years ago they weren't wingers okay now um, i'm on board with it <laughs> <laughs> they they might have they might have when the game kicked off they might have been standing on the touchline but they didn't spend very much time there um and there's just i think there's a player missing there basically there's another number eight to to kind of properly Replace Kazola. It might end up being Genduzi someday,
2: yeah. um, but with he's, we'd he's, just, the, closest. he's, he's, he's yeah, the closest. Yeah,
3: yeah. We're we're just missing, I think, that little piece, that kind of playmaker. Whether it's a dribbling playmaker or a ball-playing playmaker, Kazola was both, of course. Yeah, but uh, man, that's, those, those that's, running
1: that's, numbers they published aren't wrong. Jesus is Genduzi slow. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no well but the, the interesting thing about those right i I listened to yours and Paul's discussion about it with great interest, not least because I was Clive, at, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> not least because I was at the player performance center presentation um a couple of weeks ago and I had to be careful not to betray any confidences and um reveal sensitive player data, but one of the things they were talking about is some players we want to be great sprinters over twenty five yards. Some players, we don't care about that. We don't need them to be sprinters. We need them to move quickly from side to side in small spaces. And Paul referenced yeah. uh, the Ronaldo video. And um, and it, it was interesting, just going back to the previous discussion about, um, you know, making making tactical fouls. Socrates said that, didn't he? He said, sometimes we've got to take the yellow card. And he took the yellow card. Yeah, he did. Uh, <laughs> And the interesting thing is, actually, it's not just, I think, about athleticism. I think the more you do it, the less you get punished for it. The reason Tottenham never, ever, 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 ever get any fucking bookings is because they do it all the time. It's habit, and it's the same with City. They do it 10, 15 times a game, and the referee just tunes out. When Arsenal do it, it's a big deal, and that's why West Ham... I don't know about you, Clive. You were at the game as well. I I counted six or seven times where West Ham kicked the ball away when the ball was dead. Kicked it 10 yards out of play. Didn't get booked, did they? No, not a single booking. Socrates did it because he's a cynical bastard, and that's part of the reason he's been bought. Booking straight away. The more we do it, the less we'll get punished for it.
1: Yeah, okay. So, uh, Clive, I want to let you wrap up this section and then, because there's still a ton to get to... um, you know, and, and we want to try to keep it under our usual three and a, uh, three and a half hour running time. So, fi- final on thoughts on talk. this little segment I'm- here.
2: I'm gonna talk quick. By the way, on the speed thing, it's speed, agility, and speed endurance. So the speed agility is the short, sharp stuff. They have a special run called it's called a Gerard run, where you go up that's five yards to the right, and then you fall yards, down and lose the, the title. Tip, to the tip and then slip over and fall. T- yeah, exactly. So there, and this is something they measure. It's all done in one database, and the sprinting speed is normally forty meters. And this is all in one database for captain level right up to pro level, and so that's the way they measure those things. And on, on the Ramsey piece, it's it's interesting. I watched the game a few times and I was at the game. And what we if you go back to the seven pass Ramsey game, we played him behind the forward. And, you know, there's an open door there for me to give him a kick in. I didn't because I felt he was doing a job for the team. I felt it was a bit too high, hence, he was involved in zero build up. In this game, he was deeper and more selective and more involved and i think he's in the 40 plus pass range so he did better but a lot of the instances where he was involved in the game he was literally performing the role of a second striker rather than number 10 if that makes sense he got into the area and he was taking shots he's receiving it back to goal and i'm looking at this game i'm thinking why don't you just put lacazette there? He's, he's sharper, he's a sharper sprinter to the ball, he's more robust under press, and him and Bamiyan can share that role down the centre, one going high, one going deep, and create a problem. I think when Ramsey's not giving us no control, he's not giving us a target, we're asking him to do a job of almost a second striker when really, as the Tim alluded to, he's a third midfielder. When he plays for Wells, he has Joe Allen, Joe Leslie around him, they're his bodyguards, and he's allowed to fill in. But then he's allowed to break forward and support Bale and give him that ball in dangerous areas. So his role is defined. Right now, after 10 years, we are still talking about where's the best place to play Aaron Ramsey. Yeah, We are still well. talking about it. And there comes a point when you have to look at the player. Because I'm looking at Gwen Doozy and I'm saying, you actually play centre mid like I'd like Aaron Ramsey to play centre mid. You're always behind the ball. You don't break into the box. You can spread it out both sides and you get your tackles in. Right. he's not the pace differential is no is no different. He's got a similar technical flourish to their game. They react well to situations. They're both metronomic, but one stays behind the ball and one finds himself too high up. There comes a time when we need to think, is he gonna fit into our play or do we need to fit into him? And when you add the conundrum of Meza Ozil on top, and now we've added Mikatarian, who seems to be defining himself on the right hand side. We need to think about our interior play, how we control it, how we sprint to the ball, what type of athlete do we want in there, what type of player profile do we need in there. We need to fix that earlier. And when we do, everything else will rock around it like a little rocking chair. It will rock around, the full-backs will rock around, they're high up, we'll overload like City do. Our forwards will be in position as targets, but it's that interior and we haven't got it fixed yet. And that's what we need to do.
1: Okay, I love that. Let's take a break and talk about the defending because there's some of that to discuss. We can even get to the goals. Um, You know, why not? We're 35 minutes into the game, into the game, into the pod. I think it is interesting, by the way, 35 minutes in, we really haven't mentioned Jack Wilshere, and I think he deserves just a quick mention. I mean, obviously, his return to the Emirates, but truthfully, I think it tells you a lot about sort of how his career petered out at the club that it didn't really feel like a big moment him coming back it wasn't something that got too much attention too much focus i mean in the social media side of things i didn't see a ton of people going on about it um you know and he, he wasn't really a huge influence in the game either so you know I, I mean it's unfortunate that that's sort of where that wound up but i think you know hopefully we wish him all the best obviously but i i think it's kind of telling that he did not become the central story of this game in some ways so let's take a break we'll talk defending when we come back But right now, it's time to tell you about beer. You love beer. You need beer. You want craft beer in your life. You want the best craft beer in your life. I know I do. Problem is, you run out of beers to buy. You drink the same thing. You want to get the best craft beer. So, enter Beer 52. They're your hero. They are all our heroes. The hero we deserve. Uh, Beer 52 is the world's uh, most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. They search out incredible and exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's greatest breweries. And they bring them back for you just for you imagine someone doing that saying I'm going to find the best craft beers and I'm just going to bring them back for you it's what they do so it's really easy they're going to give you a free case of craft beer you literally just pay £2.95 that's it for the postage Uh, this month you're going to get to uh, discover fantastic beers from the winners of the Raise the Bar competition Beer 52's search for the UK's best new small brewers in partnership with London Craft Beer Festival enjoy the likes of Unity's 7% Export Stout Boxcars Belgian IPA and West by 3's Membership Wit Passion Fruit All you have to do is go to beer52.com forward slash vision, beer52.com forward slash vision. That's the word beer, which is spelled B-E-E-R, by the way, the number 52.com. But these guys are the best. Uh, The craft beer they send are incredible. You even get a ferment magazine and a snack all sent to you. So get a free case of craft beer. Let us know what you think. Go to beer52.com forward slash vision. Okay, now let's get back into uh, the downer part of the podcast, the defending Um, I think we have to touch on this a little bit because whatever the coach is trying to achieve with this system, I think against West Ham, it really broke down in substantial ways. Um, The thing that really was discouraging to me was just the amount of space that players could run into. And so for the goal, Paul, Felipe Anderson picks the ball up about 30 yards from his goal. He runs to the edge of our box. And in that entire time, he literally never has an Arsenal player within five yards of him. I mean, he runs the entire length of the pitch with no one anywhere near him. Um, You know, when Ganduzi gets the ball taken off him, again, Anderson running in acres of space. Now, we'll get to Mustafi and what he does there and some of the Mustafi issues from this game. But for you, was the defending in this game cause for real concern that maybe the system is not properly set up to, to keep us solid? Because... You know, there's part of me when I heard, oh, we're getting this pressing coach. Yay, we're getting the next Klopp. We're getting the next Guardiola. When I watch it, there's a little part of me, and I know we're just three games in, that says, oh, no, we've gotten the next Andre Villas boas So how do you feel about the the acres of space that we saw in this game for West Ham to exploit?
4: I'm fine with it. Cool. Um, All right, it's what, it, <laughs> it's what I expected to see. I mean, Really? It's, it's, yeah, it's horrible. It's ugly. Uh, we feel naked and exposed like a really bad dream where you're naked and exposed. Yeah. But we can't, we can't talk the talk about, you know, how long it's going to take, etc. About how we want pressing up front. When the pressing up front doesn't work, you're going to be wide open in the midfield. Um, I'm not going to claim we have the world's greatest defense. We don't. Uh, I think it's looking worse than it actually is. I think... Uh, and we're, we're going to tend to blame, in order of of preference, Mustafi and Bellerin, and then Socrates and then Nacho. But if you watch Nacho in the first uh, 20 minutes, he gets rinsed three times oh, on the ball. Oh, I don't outside. think he had a very
1: good game defensively either. It's just that Bellerin yeah. was so far up the pitch, most of the game he got exploited. I guess what I'm asking you, Paul, is what's supposed to be happening in those spaces? Let's say the system was working properly. To me, I don't even see... What, what's supposed to be happening to plug those spaces, to, to block off those runs and that room. And so in, in your mind, if it was, yeah. let's say, it's six months from now, what's going to be different that those spaces aren't going to be available?
4: Well, I think that's exactly right. I think that's what everybody's feeling. You can't see what the plan was because like, we're just so fucking stretched out. But when you send Bellerin and, and Mikatarian into that far right corner and we lose the ball... And there's no counter-press, You know, it's one of those, what do you expect to happen down that side? You've, you've only got two midfielders. You've got no right back. And you've got Mustafi in. we probably got some form of a high line in which everybody's saying, oh, if there's no pressure, you've got to drop off. You've got to drop off. You remember that bit from last week against Chelsea? Yeah. What are you going to get but space down that side? It's an invitation for them to – and they are going to be allowed to run down that side because if you dive in, you're – we've already said our midfielders are, say, medium pace against um, Anderson going down that wing. If they dive in, you're down one more man, so you're basically going to escort him down the wing – He's going to have more pace and you're going to look like we looked. So until we get the counter press sorted out, until we move more cohesively with the midfield, timing it and positioning it with Mikatarian and Bellerin and Mustafi getting his spacing right, we're just going to look ugly for months and months. I don't know what, when people say things like, we we talk the talk at the start of the season, but we can't walk the walk as, as supporters. Understandable. We're anxious. We know how important these three points are. We think progression is going to be this straight line up where we're going to be bad, but we get slightly better and slightly better. It's not going to look like that. This is what buy-in looks like. This is what uh progression looks like. Well and we it's did steps, win. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, but beside forget the result. We will take step back steps backward before we take steps forward. It'll look ugly. Players like Bellerin will look shit. Players like uh Uh, Let's take a good one here. Mustafi is
1: always one you could just grab if you're looking for one. Yeah, I don't want to go that way because... (laughs) Well, well, can can I stop you just for one second, But there are
4: multiple... Well, yes, in one second. There are multiple (laughs) players who will look worse than they are and are actually being courageous because they are going to look shit in front of 60,000 people and millions of of viewers because they're buying in and doing things that maybe don't really suit their game as they saw it in the past and have them playing in different ways and are going to expose them. So
1: the the players themselves Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you also have to take the players words for it. The players themselves acknowledged after the game, we need to be less open. I mean, Socrates had some comments about it. Um, Aaron Ramsey had some comments about it that we're not getting the balance right between how we're supposed to be playing in possession and out of possession and, I, you know, yeah. again, I totally but agree I with you. I think
4: that's more about working as teams and units and coordination. It's not about doing something different. It's, it's to Clyde's point, it's all execution. And this big fucking hole in the middle is when one part pulls one way, the other doesn't quite respond and anticipate. And, and if you don't counterpress and you've got literally seven, eight players in their final third, you're going to be a bit... Exp- exposed when you get get hit on the counter
1: yeah no that's fair look i I think the only thing i would say to some point is i agree with you that that, that it's not going to be straight line progression but what was a little tough is in those first two games you could look and see the plan and kind of understand what it was intended to do and you can draw some positives from that i think what worried me a little in this game is there were moments where i didn't understand what the plan was in terms of attacking the way he wants to attack without being totally open. And if you're gonna use But
4: City and Chelsea kept us compact whether we liked it or not. Because well, I think we they did that by design too.
1: But 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 Paul But they what, had more so of the what, what we come what back we in have, five, sure. Just,
2: Why not? We just have a we just it's an implementation issue. That's all it is. We're implementing things piece by piece and we're just falling down in specific areas. I think Paul, your point there about being brave and courageous, that, that's a really interesting one. I think what we need to realise as fans is we don't know what the players are being told. The, the, from the moment you see Aaron Ramsey have a seven-pass game and Mesa Ozil have a ten-pass game, all bets are off. All, right? all bets are off. We have to judge these players completely differently to how we've previously judged them. And you know what? Maybe... We actually know these players as well as the major does right now. He's learning about these players and he's putting them in holes and he's discovering things. And that's why the line isn't linear. It's a bit choppy, right? And we sort of expect it to be a bit smoother on uh, at the weekend and it just was It's gonna
4: be a random walk is <coughs> it's, what it's uh, it's, it's, down, it's awful. It's awfully,
2: it's awfully nervy. It's awfully nervy and it was a I did not enjoy the game at the weekend. I did not enjoy. I don't enjoy think
1: you're it. alone. <laughs> I, didn't I did
2: not enjoy I sat, I know where Tim sits, I was about 20 rows behind him on the halfway line and I did not enjoy the atmosphere. I did not enjoy how the fans were reacting to the players. It was not a pleasurable experience for myself on the day. I don't want to brush it, now am with the same brush. And I think it's because what we're trying to discuss here with a little bit of thought is happening live to people and they're nervous and they're reacting to things they're just not unsure of. And they're looking at this, and and they're they're not maybe thinking it through, which you don't do on a day when it's all live, and we looking ugly as a crowd, if I'm honest with you. That's that's how I felt. That was my impression Mm. when I walked away. And um, I go, like, once a month, I come away with a different impression each time, and I came away thinking, wow, we're struggling with the change on the pitch and off the pitch. And the way it manifests itself is picking on certain individuals, which I'm sure will. Touchable no, later. sure. All
1: right.
4: Look, uh, uh, and to, to me, t- this is what change yeah, looks guys. like. It's going to look ugly. Yeah, we're okay. going to
1: look worse. Okay, let's let's move on. Um, I, I think, Tim, for me, one of the things that is interesting about halftime changes is because we're so unused to them, they're so exciting. But they also mean you got it wrong from the start. Where do you come down on, on the halftime changes? First, in terms of whether you thought they were the right ones, which personally I do. Mm. But second, mm. just on whether... How much... Do you allocate to it being brave and competent management, and how much do you allocate to it being a worrying sign that you're in consecutive games where you got it wrong from the start?
3: It's a little bit of both, but I think um, it do- it deserves a little bit of leeway just because he is still kind of working out his team, is working out what they can and can't do. So yes, of course, it's an admission that if you keep having to do that, it's because you keep kind of getting the starting lineup wrong. But I mean, that's that's kind of to be expected really at this stage, it's all very well watching players like Granit Xhaka and Alex Iwobi. And we know in, in the interview, Emery was meant to have impressed because he's done all the research on the players and he knows them, but he like everyone else only knows them in the context of what they were being asked to do last season. He knows what they look like in an Arsene Wenger team, but nobody, not even the players themselves, knows what they look like in an Unai Emery team um, right now. So there is there is going to be trial and error. And like Paul said, change is ugly. Um, that's how it happens. I, I completely agree. I think we'll get... I, I know we keep drawing this comparison to Klopp and Pochettino's first seasons, but I think it's really worth doing because what did you see in their first seasons? You saw a lot of, oh my God, Liverpool lost at home to Crystal Palace. How did that happen? Or... You know, Spurs drew with Aston Villa. Like, what's happening there? And that that doesn't happen to those teams anymore. They largely win the games you expect them to win. But this is, you know, it's, it, and it's the same, and I know we're going to come on to this later, it's the same with individual players. This is what organisational change looks like. You know, Eggs are always broken when you're making the omelette. This is a massive, massive, massive change for Arsenal. This is, and, and it's not just the manager. The playing staff is almost unrecognizable from the last 18 months. All of the support staff is different. Everything is different, basically. Um, And in any organisation, whether you're an elite sports team or whether you're an accounting firm, this is what change looks like. It's 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 a it's a process of trial and error, and you know some pretty big eggs get broken. That's just the way it is. If you're if you've ever worked in a firm where there's a new director, what happens? Usually, like a CEO or someone goes, or um, you know one of the junior directors, or there's usually. There's some kind of big ruptions that happen and it's not always immediate. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes it's right. I'm here now. I don't like you or what you do, or I need someone to do something different. Sometimes it takes a couple of months to work that out. Sometimes it's six months in and it's like, do you know what? I don't think you're really what I need for this organization. It's exactly the same for a sports team. And Paul's exactly right. It's going to be a complete, it's going to be trial and error. Basically for a year, and what's really interesting about this year, and and Elliot, I know you talk about this a lot. We've Arsenal have kind of already used up their transition tariff on Arsene Wenger. We've had two years of so. On one hand, there's going to be some short-term pain for long-term gain but on the other hand we've already had two years of supposedly short-term pain and if we have any more it's not short-term anymore so for me the interesting thing is Unai Emery has about three years work to do in one year because if we spend another year outside of the Champions League that's it that's what we are we're a Europa League team we'll get Europa League level players and we're potentially in a very difficult position to come back. So what's basically happened for the manager is two of his bedding year, in years have been taken up by Arsene Wenger. And so he's got to find stuff out really, really quickly. And for me, I'm, I'm fine with breaking a few eggs. I'm fine if like a couple of big players, you know, decide that they don't want you know they don't want this or we have to sell them or whatever i'm i'm fine with that and i'm fine with him finding things out quickly i'm fine with him in august and september going right you're not right you're not doing what i need you to do fine 45 minutes that's it you're off um i won't judge you for it for the next game i've asked you to do something you can't do and i'm i'm all for him i'm all for this being um You know quite rickety in the first couple of months i'm all for quite a lot of half-time substitutions because emery has to come to some quite quick conclusions because he can't still be doing this in november and december because you know we can't fall back that far we've he's got to find out a lot of information very quickly and that i think means probably making some snap decisions um and so far he's shown an appetite for that whether they're the right ones we won't see for the fullness of time but I, I i really liked um paul's uh kind of analogy on the pre-west ham podcast about this being like a crime scene and everyone just needs to step the fuck back and just let like people do their work for a couple of months
1: naked and, gun uh, dot gif. there's nothing to in, see here
3: <laughs> in, indeed indeed and and also, I, I completely agree with Clive's point. I've been so, so, so disappointed with the crowd. Last year, I, I, I guess I just put it all down to, you know, uh, well, Venga's still here, and people are a bit pissed off, and I understand that. This, this to me, there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people just being a bit silly, a bit immature, a bit unable to control some quite basic emotions. You know, whenever every time we play out from the back even when Czech just goes to roll the ball out everyone starts like shitting their pants and it's so annoying and they're not doing it because anyone's actually in danger they're doing it to make a point and it just it just really disappoints me because it's like this is the change we all wanted and it's not going to happen overnight you know you guys all of us all of us not you guys sorry i don't i don't mean to like
1: I'm, I'm totally fine sure. with whatever you're about to say. We, <laughs> I'll, I'll own whatever it is. Just lay it on but, me.
3: No, no. I, I, I mean, I mean, all of us as fans, we all asked for this. We moaned for this. We whinged for this. We pressed for this, and I think we, we flew, right we flew this, airplanes so. for this. Uh, exactly depressingly enough. <laughs> so shut up and let it take hold for at least a couple yeah. of months. And I've been really disappointed with both the basic intelligence and the emotional intelligence of the crowd. I really, really thought that at least five or six, at least five or six games, they'd shut up just watch things unfold and make their judgments later. But what we're learning is that it wasn't all about Arsene Wenger. It's just some people are miserable bastards and some people are just not very smart. <laughs> can no, I, can I make that? Right. I just want. Hang on.
4: I just want to see progress. But
1: this is <laughs> no. progress. Just you everybody stop. first. Everybody stop. No, I, I'm just. No. I've
2: got to say something on top of that. I mean, oh, it, it's really starting to affect the enjoyment I have of watching the game. And and I've been going since since late 70s. It is awful. And it's not about football snobbery here. This has been an environment that's been around for the last five years where it's been quite angry towards the manager. We have what we supposedly want and then we give the guy two games and we're on him already. I mean, it is just... I tell you now, it's not about the football. It's not about the manager. It's about fans and how they feel and their expectations when they walk into a ground and what they expect to see and feel and we as a club are not fulfilling that and they care about themselves and I don't care what you say I've seen it I've heard it I've been arguing with people all weekend about Hector Bellerin he's not perfect but without him we don't win that game if you can't see that then I I, I, it's a great reason to listen
1: to to our in the spotlight episode later this week on the Patreon I would strongly recommend it
2: so uh, yeah, yeah, I feel okay. tim beautifully beautifully said I feel just as strong.
1: We've gone justice. we've gone like 80,000 foot view on a game that has plenty of granular issues we can dive into and um I, I think everything you all have said is uh, articulate, eloquent and accurate. Um, Thank um you. my my defense of the fans would only be that I think the irony of the disappointment in the West Ham game is that I think it was born out of a little bit of encouragement from the Chelsea and City games. I think, Mm -hmm. I know that, I mean, I predicted 5-1 Arsenal because, first of all, I'm a moron. But second of all, I actually felt so excited by some of the things I saw in the first two games, and especially that first half against Chelsea, that I kind of just thought, wow, we're closer to clicking than I expected, and we're really going to hammer West Ham. And so, uh, uh, pun intended. But, so I do think some of the disappointment, ironically, was born out of more encouragement from those first two losses than might have been expected. And that's the only problem, Expectations were very high for this game.
2: Yeah, but it's how those disappointments are manifested. When they're manifested to the point where players are getting abused and they don't want the ball in wide spaces, or don't want to be caught in wide spaces, then you're affecting the team then you're affecting how the team operates. And that's what I was seeing players receiving the ball with closed shoulders going backwards. People shouting at them, saying, why don't you take them on? And it, all it is is nerves. I get it. We're all nervous. We all go for different emotions during the game. And sometimes you're cool and sometimes you're not. You can't explain it. But it's football and we wanted this change. And none of us know how it's going to happen. So open your mind to it. Don't talk about it. And then when it comes, you want it your way. Open your Amen, mind to brother. what could happen. Amen. It could be wonderful. It could be rocky, but it's going to be different. And we've all wanted that. But I, I'm, I'm and it's not st- going to be
4: extremely straight line improvement. And Elliot, you've mm. just asked for straight line improvement. You're not going to get it. It's I, going to be I one game not. good, one game. You have. I have not. You said because you did. You oh, said we
2: because City and Chelsea. Made the assumption.
1: That and now I did too, Elliot. To I did too. 5 0. My guys, bet went There's down. a difference between expecting it. And just having your expectations raised organically. really, really
4: hoping first.
1: Well, sure. What I'm saying is, let's say we had just beaten West Ham 7-1. Let's say that's what had happened. And we were a swashbuckling, dynamic, incredible team. No matter how much in the back of your mind your intelligent brain is saying, be patient, be patient, be patient, there's going to be a part of you that thinks, we're going to go fucking hammer Cardiff now too. And I know that's not how it works, but it's... It's It's
4: not how it works. No, it's going it, to be a random walk. But if you're going asking to people to
1: watch football, have a drink, go to the stadium, watch football, and totally divorce themselves from the emotions that well up in them organically, I think first of all— We don't
4: need to go to extremes, though.
1: Right. Yeah, okay.
3: I, I, that's the thing. I don't think this is all because there are some things that are organic. Some, like Cl- Clive says, you get nervous. I do and say things in football grounds that, if I think about it afterwards, I think, well, that was stupid and that was just purely emotional. I do it emotional. on a podcast. So you this know. is this is different, though. This is like a goalkeeper just about to roll the ball to a centre back, and people like basically crying. And it's just like that. That's not a nervous situation. That's not an emotional moment. But people are choosing. They're choosing to Mm -hmm. be angry. Mm -hmm. There are moments that make you angry in a football game. Or there are moments, you know, you know, if someone is like up the arse of one of your players, everyone just shouts man on which is helpful, but it's also it's a product of nervous energy. But someone rolling the ball out to the centre-halves, for fuck's sake, that is not like a nervous, emotional moment. That is the and most they know better,
4: Tim. Yeah. This is what the best teams do. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, you, watch, you just watch City come to the Emirates and kill us by doing it. So, I mean, yeah. you know, surely it's the right way to go. All right, look, t- Tim, let me ask you just a quick question then about the defense. So, mm. if we're going to do this thing where we attack down the wing with Bellerin and Mkhitaryan, and we were very effective doing it, and Bellerin had a brilliant attacking performance, he also found himself in situations where he's, you know, square on the halfway line with 50 yards behind him and two players running into that space— yeah. what needs to happen to protect that space? Do Ganduzi and Shaka need to split and drop to cover the wings? What, is, what isn't happening? And in your mind, and I realize you're not the coach, but you know if you are and you're looking at that game film and you're saying, all right, we did great work up the right side uh, attacking, but it left us too exposed. Mm. What is what is supposed to be happening that isn't to give us a little bit of the security that we lose when Bellerin and Makatarian go raiding up the right side?
0: Well,
3: I think it's probably going to be down to the midfield three, isn't it? Um, you look at the way uh, Emery operated at PSG, uh, who's who's a really, really good player, who's not quite a winger and not quite a central midfielder, uh, Blaise Matuidi. Um, and that's why France play him, even though yeah. he's not an elite level player. He's a very good player, but he's not like, he's not on the level of those other France players, but they play him because he can play in that kind of midfield three. He can shuffle to over to the touchline and he can come inside, a, you know, a bit of like Ray Parley used to do, I guess for Arsenal where he was, you know, almost in that half space, but as a midfielder. And I'm guessing that's what we've bought Lucas Torreira for, because that's meant to be one of his his great attributes, that he can cover full backs, that he can get across the width of the pitch. And again, this is the different type of running that we were talking about earlier. It's not straight lines. What Torreira is meant to be very good at, and I haven't seen enough to confirm this one way or t'other, is getting across the pitch. And actually, that was something that Francis Coquelin, I thought, was quite good at. Francis uh, Coquelin...
2: Tim, you took the words out of my (laughs) mouth. This team would suit Francis Coughlan. I was going to say that it would, wouldn't it? You can see it—sprinting speed, collision, sort you out.
3: Yeah, exactly. Team, exactly. But just don't put him over the halfway line just have him in front of the defense patrolling side to side and I'm guessing Torreira is going to do maybe a version um, of that and we certainly looked a lot more secure when he came on because the thing is with mikatarian and whoever else plays in those wide positions they're being asked to come in field that's how Emery plays he likes his wide forwards to come right in field and make a triangle for a front three and it works very well going forward but you're right coming back it, it, it can look pretty bad Bad. and uh, and that's why I kind of wondered if we'd end up with not quite a midfield diamond but something you know maybe the three points on the diamond rather than the fourth point at the top um and so I, I I'm guessing that that's what's going to happen is that Torreira is going to take up that kind of you know Xhaka you sit there I'll go from side to side um I'll cover the full backs and, you know, you do what you do. You kind of sit here and, and redistribute the ball. That's that's what I'm guessing is going to happen. And to be fair, that looked a lot more like what was happening when Torreira came
2: on. Yeah, and Towards the I- end, it was working, wasn't it, Tim? Towards yeah. the end, you could see the start of something. Yeah. So another thing implemented. So we're seeing one or two things implemented each game. We just haven't seen the game yet where five or six of these things are working at the same time. And I think... Then we need to think about some of the partnerships he has that would work, and why split them. like, for example, the front two, why split them? We know it works. Keep them on. Give yourself an insurance policy while you're waiting for other things to bed in. We seem to find a midfield two. We've got no choice but a centre half two. We've got a right side two. So we're starting to develop something here. We got we got something to do with the with the ten and or the you know, the high eight. Um, we potentially got something to the left-hand side, but we're starting to see the partnership develop and the roles develop. We just haven't seen it in one game.
1: Well, and I, I do think-, think you have to, at some point as well, acknowledge that if you're going to play this way, sometimes your defenders are going to get isolated and they're going to have to defend difficult situations. And I actually think Socrates has been pretty good. I think he's done all right. Mm-hmm. I think Mustafi has still struggled. And I realize... I I pick on the guy, but like that situation where Gendouzi lost the ball and he couldn't chase down Felipe Anderson. And Mustafi just backpedaled and backpedaled and stood there and didn't close him down, didn't close him down, didn't close him down. Eventually it results in a ball going to the penalty spot and should have been a goal. Um, it's because Mustafi knows if I go out there and try to defend Felipe Anderson, I'm going to get rinsed. He's going he's gonna to just mm. go right past me and I'm going to get exposed. And so he did nothing. He just kind of froze. And I, I think... You know, as much as you hate to just pick on players, this system is going to create situations where central defenders have to put out fires in tough situations. Um, You know, and and I think Mustafi... Has been left wanting in in that respect, um, Tim. It sounds like you've something to add there.
3: I was just going to say, whereas Socrates uh, strikes me as the kind of defender that really relishes that one on one defending. He reminds me of he's not quite as quick across the ground, but he reminds me a bit of Colo Torre in that respect. Were <laughs> like, you a mind reader or
2: what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in I was that Colo.
3: Kolo loved a one-on-one. He loved a one-on-one where Kolo's Arsenal career slipped away was when he was asked to do something a a bit more, or I hesitate to say mature where he was asked to be a bit more of a patroller. What he loved was one-on-one Jules, I'll race you. I'll tackle you. I'll kick you out of the ground. Um, You know, he he had that kind of enthusiasm and Socrates reminds, I think has that he, what he really likes is one-on-one, you know, I'm up your backside. I'm in your shorts. I'm in your shirt. I'll kick you in the air if I have to. I'll take you out. I'll slide tackle you. He likes that. I don't think Mustafi does because Mustafi is not as natural a defender. What Mustafi is good at is playing the ball out. And if you look at the passing numbers, Mustafi is the one who's passing the ball out and that's where his value is. But in terms of proper defending... It's it's that's what Socrates likes.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And um, you know, Tim, the the funny thing about you invoking Cochran that I, I thought was really interesting, Coughlin's tackling numbers were through the roof, off the charts. In a team that didn't really defend that way, right? It was very based mm. on positioning and interceptions and stuff. Now we have a team that clearly wants to tackle more. And, you know, he, he was a guy who always did that, so I think it would have been you know, really interesting uh, to have that fit in this team. And I've never been a fan of his, but I thought that was, you know, a really interesting guy to bring up. The The reality is that we, you know, it is a work in progress. But so, Paul, I want to sort of interrogate a point you made, which is, you know, you're saying we have to be patient, we have to be patient. I totally agree with you. That it's going to be a couple steps forward, a couple steps back. It's going to be a, you know, a, what, what did you say? A, a, something walk, a unpredictable a walk. A random walk. A random walk, okay. What? But so then here's my question. Doesn't that mean we also have to resist believing certain players should start over other players. So for example, a lot of people are saying, clearly Lacazette needs to start now. We look better when he's on the pitch, he needs to start. But if you believe that this is a process, and part of the process is that Emery believes strongly in starting with one up front, and he believes that Aubameyang is that guy, at what point do you say, nope, we look better with Lacazette, that much is clear, he makes us better, he needs to start too, or do you sit back and say, "Trust the process; it's a random walk, and this is what Emery believes is the best system."
4: Well, I mean, he's he said he believes one uh, one striker up front for now. He doesn't say one striker up front forever.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm genuinely asking. So, That's not a pointed question. Yeah, yeah. I'm just no, asking. But,
4: but I think. Uh, Emery's being very open-minded. Uh, Tim's kind of touched on that. He'll he'll drop a guy, he'll play him again. Chaka's a good example. Chaka, I thought, had a very good game in this. Um, Ganduzzi's interesting in this game. Uh, and it may not sound like I'm answering your question, but I'm actually trying to. Ganduzzi had <laughs> a good <laughs> game. Um, not a great game. He gave the ball away a couple of times, especially dangerously, and in the second half over in the, in the Bellerin quarter. Uh, corridor, and I reckon the manager was already itching to bring Torreira on. So Ganduzi gave it away twice over there, and and somebody else gave it away, and then Gandossi gets yanked, and Torreira comes in. And I think to Tim's earlier point, what we're se- it almost feels like um, it, Emery's kind of approaching these games like serious pre games where players will get yanked at halftime or 55 minutes. And to your point, Elliot, I think he's basically saying I have an open mind because he does and he's trying different things and he has an, his initial thoughts, which is it should be Aubameyang up front, but he keeps finding every time. Well, apart from the Chelsea game, he keeps <laughs> finding every time he goes goes that way. Actually, Lacazette plus... but. To be fair, there was a there was a cost to uh, Lancazette starting up front in the second half. Aubameyang didn't look that good. I mean, he didn't look terrible, and he had a couple of moments, but it definitely bumps him down the list a little bit. Um, so you got it, it. There's a lot of things in in play here in change. I think uh, I do want to take the opportunity to say that my uh, forgotten man coming into this season was Mkhitaryan with the slow preseason. And to Tim's point about pre-seasons, he was the one guy who decided to think this was all about conditioning. I think he's been pretty close to excellent. I think he fucking ran this game. And when you think about our ups and downs with uh, Ramsey and Ozil and we talk about it's got to be, say, Yang and Lacazette starting, leaving one spot uh, in the front three, and it's got to be, say, Torreira and Chaka or Genduzzi. There's not a lot of spots left, but Mikatarian has, if he had just arrived at the club, I think we'd all be fucking raving about him. I think he has stepped into the gap that's been left by the Ozil and and Ramsey uncertainties over the first three games. I think Mkhitaryan, uh, you know, we give Bellerin lots of credit, and he should have. But it's fucking Mikatarian who's running that corner over there. Forty-four percent of our attacks are through that corner. Nothing happened on the Uobi and Nacho side because there was, there was no real point to just get it over to fucking Mikatarian and he'll he'll run that triangle in his into out runs. I think he's been sensational.
1: You know what he's really good at? He he plays brilliant little entry passes from the channel. You know what I mean? He Whether it's yeah. the overlap or just a little slid ball across the top of the box or kind of finding the ball between the center back and the fullback. You know what I mean? He he yeah. has a really good eye for the player running into the box. And we yeah. haven't always had that. And Bellerin you know, now seems to be getting the point of pulling the ball back to the spot and doing a little better when he gets to the touchline. And that has made that a really, really dangerous flank for us. I think... You know, And I'll give Mkhitaryan credit defensively. I mean, he wasn't always in the position he needed to be, but he was always running, always working, always you know, harrying his man. I think it's, it's certainly not a lack of work rate. I think where you worry is when you see players that are jogging or you know, aren't switched on. And I will say this about Ganduzi. I love the kid, as you know. I'm, I'm totally on board the hype train. I do think there were moments in this game where he could have been more alive to danger. Um you know, and, and the defensive instincts in his game are not there yet and you could say, well that's true for yeah. Shaka too to some extent, but I think if Ganduzia is gonna to continue to start in this system, he's going to have to mature defensively. And it may be time now that he naturally is a nineteen year old making a huge step up takes maybe a step yeah. a step back to Europa League or something just to kind of get his, his feel for the team. We'll see how that goes. I, I
4: very, so I very much agree with that, Elliot, except I thought his performance in the game wasn't particularly good when I watched it live. When I went back and watched it, I actually think he had a pretty good game. I still agree with your basic point. It may be the time at which Torreira is brought in and, you know, uh, Genduzi is really... Uh, it, 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 off the bench and and coming on in the second half and and Europa League for a little while, but I didn't actually on the second look at it. I actually
2: thought he had, he was still playing at a
4: pretty good level. Statistically, it was a fine he game. Start,
1: yeah, go ahead, go ahead. He come.
2: started he he started well and faded. Yeah, that's all yeah. that happened. And if you look at the other games, he also faded in those games as well. But we kept him on. And this was smart management. Take him out. Don't let him pull something. He was playing League Two last year and he's suddenly playing against City, Chelsea and, and West Ham. Just take him off. do no problem You're 19, mate. Settle down on the bench. How did you find that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No drama there. Yeah. That kid's the future. He is the future of midfield. In the early part of that game, I couldn't take my eyes off him. Collision, 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 turn around, spread the play. He got caught in the right-hand channel of a slight tackle he didn't make. They came in down better inside. He gave the ball away. Paul, you're absolutely right. Suddenly, you're in debit. You're in debit now, mate. Can you get into yeah. credit? No, you no, you can't. Time to sit down, son. No problem. Yeah. It's no yeah. problem at all. It's, it's just football.
1: So, all right, let, let's wrap up on this game and get to the Ozal thing really quickly as we've, we've started to run predictably long. But, Tim, first of all, just 30,000-foot view coming away from this game. Obviously, the three points were the most important thing. On XG, it was, you know, I think 1.9 or 1.6 to 1.3 in that range, something like that. Um, And a a lot of that XG for us came from the Welbeck goal that made it safe at the end. Do you come Mm. away from the game putting the result aside, which, again, Mm. I realize you can't do that in football, but do it for a second. Is this a step forward in the process for you, or was this a sideways step or a step back? What was your emotional reaction to the performance you saw?
3: um at at this stage at this early stage everything is a step forward in the process so if we get beat five nil it's a step forward in the process because when do we go to city um, (laughs) because because when that happens you go right Um, Did did you ever see that quote from Chris Coleman when he was managing Sunderland and they said they said to him, like, what does Sunderland need to do to um, to, you know, turn things around? And he said the exact opposite of everything we've done for the last five years. And um, so even if you lose 5-0, you go, right, let's just not do any of the stuff we did in that game again. We're in um, a stage of like gathering information effectively. And we've talked about this, how the manager is accumulating information on his players. And it's all data at the moment, basically. And all of that data is equally useful. um, And only the fullness of time will show us what's useful and what's what's not useful. So um, at the moment, Everything's kind of a bit of a full, a, a baby step forward, and but is that Paul's really point. how
1: you came away? Fi- I, I, mean, I guess what I'm saying is, like, that, did you look at this and see a performance that encouraged you, or you know? And I get it, I get, I get what you're saying yeah, about yeah, process. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. what did your eyes tell My you? Were you like this was reaction. ugly, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my emotional reaction immediately after the game was this was not really a good performance. The defensively, we looked exposed and a better team would have punished us. And going forward until Lacazette came on, you know, save for the, the bellerin Mikatarian thing, we didn't have a lot going forward until Lacazette came on. Lacazette, when he came on, I think made, made a big difference. There was just a bit more movement up there. You know, you look at that well goal again, look at Lacazette's front post run completely takes the defender away from welbeck and that was the kind of thing we didn't you know a bit of Bamiang was probably looking at that from the bench and thinking fucking hell i really could have used that about half an hour ago yeah rather than just well, having same. three defenders on me all the time with no what you know with just like green grass around me so um that. it's it's my emotional reaction was that actually this was maybe the least encouraging of the three performances um but my kind of logical reaction is that, like I said, it's all it's all useful data at the moment. Right. And
1: Clive, I'll let you come in. I just want to say one thing about that. And and that's all I'm saying to him. Like, I don't think I think it is compatible to say I looked at that and felt it was ugly and didn't like that performance mm. and also Definitely. know that it's part of the process on the road to where we're going. So, yep. you know, I don't think it's petulant to have a reaction yeah. to the game. Otherwise, what, what, what's the point of watching it? Just tune it out for the whole season and let me know where we finished, you know? So, yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I think that's totally fine and totally fair. And I think, for me, the reason this was worrying, the only reason I got a little worried is, you know, Arsene Wenger got accused of not having a plan B. Remember that? That used to be the thing, oh, he doesn't have a plan B. And then it was Giroud is the perfect plan B and all these things. But the thing that worried me here is just in the first two games, I saw how dangerous we could be in transition with our press. In this game, I saw the challenges we have doing it another way, building from the back. That's where we looked really uh, not ready, half-baked, was was our in-possession sort of build-up, trying to create opportunities that way. Um, and that worries me only because against maybe 13 or 14 of the teams in the league, that's what you're going to need to do. So ironically, we might be better suited to playing the bigger teams than we are the smaller teams at this point. We'll have to see that. Uh, everyone gets a last quick word, then. So, Clive, let's start with you. Last quick word before we just give our thoughts on the on the Ozil absence.
2: Uh, I think it's, it's down to personnel, Elliot, right? It's down to, you know, you you think about why was the build up better in the second half, or well, we had a build up player in Lacazette come on. If you think about another player that's a very big part of our build up. Yeah, I call him the washing machine. giving give him the ball, he tiles it up and cleans it up and sends it out the other side. Is Ozil, right? He cleans up difficult possession and makes it clean. Yeah, so you take those two players out, our build-up was, was rocking. And what was exposed was not playing out from the back so much, but playing in that middle third and the transition that West Ham put on us. And with Mikel Antonio and Anderson and the left-back, I can't remember his name now, They are pretty rapid. And Fredericks on the right-hand side. These are not slow players. And they're quicker than us. And their transition was really fast. And we were in trouble. We were in trouble trying to catch them. So it's the quality of that middle phase build-up, which we were asking players to do a job, which they're not very good at in Aubameyang and Ramsey. They're not build-up players. They are final flourish players. Yep, They are the final touch. I'm going to make a run for me. To get into the position for me, Lacazette will make a, def- a a run for his strike partner. Right, he will make a 15-yard run to knowing he's not going to get the ball. To someone else will get the ball. So if we've learned something from this game, we must have two forward-type animals in that front three. Not have Iwobi and Mkhitaryan because I think they do the same job. On you need a you need a forward animal, whether it's Welbeck or Bamiang or Lacazette. You need two of those on the pitch at all times. Because that creates trauma for the other team. And then you get a forward combination. You get people who can see the ball back to goal. Lacazette had one, simple one. Ramsey had loads of these. He got the ball back to goal. He's a midfielder, so he knocked it off to the, to the nearest man and then ran around the corner. Lacazette, feet to goal, shake and break, left foot shot, nearly a goal you know he's a, he's a forward that's what you want you want your forward receiving the ball in those areas so we're learning things but just not quickly enough for my liking as a fan but i'm prepared to not yes. be an idiot and, and wait that totally and wait. well said
1: yeah and and i i think this is the other challenge that Emery has and i feel for him starting with city and chelsea away is that the kind of football that you can play against those teams that are in City, for example, further ahead of you in their process and just better, and in Chelsea, for example, just a really tough matchup because of the quality of their players, versus the kind of game you can play against the bottom half of the league are two very different types of football. And, you know, the one thing I'll say about Arsene Wenger, Arsene Wenger, his last 10 years, his career was based almost entirely on beating up on the bottom half of the league. And that's how we stayed top four all those years. You know, we were always awful in the top six league or whatever your top four league but we were brilliant at beating up on those small teams and emory may be turning us into a team that can win big games but unfortunately a big part of the job is being a team that can win the small games and lots of them so we'll see um so paul final thought on the game and then we're we're just going to touch on Message.
4: No, let, let's get on to Mesut. I think okay. it, I, 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 I share people's frustration at the end of the game. I just had prepared myself that I was going to be frustrated at the end of this game. I think it's going to be one step forward, one step back. That's all.
1: Yep. Okay, good stuff. So let, let's do this. So Mesut Ozil misses the game. And, uh, you know, it's, he, he has now missed seven games in the last 20 months through uh, illness, or at least, you know, illness has been stated as a reason. I think there's one thing that we'll all make clear. I I think I can say this for everyone is first of all, you know, you can speculate about any number of things about a person, but speculating is a little bit irresponsible when it comes to mental health, physical health, you know, uh, uh, immune health, whatever it is. So we can only go on statements that are made by people that suppose they have information about the situation. So, The one thing I will say is, it seems like a lot of games to miss through illness. It seems like Mesut Ozil misses more time for this reason than the average footballer, and I don't think that can be contested. Um, You know, Mesut Ozil is our star player, our highest paid player, and so he is naturally going to get a lot of attention when he misses games like this. Also, it's not like Monday after the Chelsea game, news came out that Mesut wasn't feeling well and... We'll see how he feels at the end of the week. I mean, you know, this comes up at the very, very last minute. So, again, a little bit eye, eyebrow raising. Then a, a journalist for ESPN comes out and says that, in fact, there was a bust up between Emery and Ozil, that Ozil was going to be dropped, and that he refused to show up to sit on the bench. Now, look, there are some people that are outraged that that is even being entertained, that this journalist's statement is even being contemplated as possibly being true. Emery himself said, no, he's he's sick. Asked the doctor, um, you know, and people say, so that's it. That settles it. Tim, I want to start with you because mm. I think at a minimum, someone deserves to have the benefit of the doubt, you know, for not just being a lying, mendacious asshole. Right. Um, if mm. someone is a journalist for The Sun and they have a history of writing clickbait garbage and they have no integrity and they say something and you say, we need to dismiss it because of where it's coming from. I totally understand that. Can you at least give us a little bit of color, a little bit of background on mm. the person making this claim and whether there is any reason to maybe consider it as credible?
3: Yeah, okay. So um full disclosure, I, I know Joel. I know him, not just his work. I know him personally. I know him as a friend um and when i say a friend i don't just mean someone i talk to on twitter occasionally um he's he's been in my house actually um, well, my old house, because I've only been in this house for like 48 hours. So not that but, good a friend. No, I'm just so, <laughs> so, so I know him personally, and you can take that one of two ways, right? So you can say I know him, I know his character, I know his work because he works for ESPN Brazil, and for fairly obvious reasons, I follow that work, and I follow that work because I know him personally um, as a friend. So you could say that colours my judgement somewhat, but what I can give you is. Um, is some background on Joel. First of all, he's an Arsenal fan. Um, he moved to Brazil he moved to London from Brazil when he was nine, lived in North London, went to school in Camden, big Arsenal fan. Um, secondly, he's not really like a reporter, journalist Um, He makes video content for ESPN Brazil. That's what he does. So uh, this is why I've worked with him a few times. He likes to do stuff with fans. He likes to, because he's broadcasting to people who are very far away, he likes to give it like local color. So he he goes around the ground. He talks to supporters. He talks to people behind the scenes and things like that. He makes, you know, I'm going to use that awful phrase, engaging video content. (laughs) But that's what he does. Okay, he's not like he's not a hack. Um, And usually he doesn't really report on information uh, or anything like that. He gets player interviews. He does pitch side stuff, read his tweets. They're all about what fans are chanting and things like that. He tries to give some domestic color to games for people in Brazil. So this, this isn't really the sort of stuff he does. Um, But he is at Arsenal a lot. Um, He does know people. He has contacts and, you know, I, c- I can only tell you, and how much you take my word for it is is completely up to you. But I would absolutely put my word alongside Joel's. And that's not. I'm not saying that I have that information or that information was given to me. It wasn't. But as far as I'm concerned, he gathered that from more than one source. And if that's what he says, um, I'm telling you as someone that knows him, then that's what's happened. I would also say, if you look a little bit between, read a little bit between the lines here, I don't think Arsenal are making a massive effort to protect Mesut Ozil here, um, saying he's ill. Arsenal aren't stupid. They know that people roll their eyes and clack their tongues when people say Mesut Ozil is ill. They they could have said a lot of other things. Um, And don't get me wrong, he might just be ill, and that might be the end of it. If he was... Then And, you know, and listen, Joao's word has been vindicated by several other journalists since. There's a lot of stuff that came out on Sunday night when the journalist did the roundtable stuff with Emery um, on Saturday after the game. And things came out like Ozil was in the dressing room for an hour before the game. If he's ill, what the fuck is he doing in the dressing room <laughs> around everyone that's about to play? And Emery kind of sheepishly had to say, well, if someone else gets ill, that's on me. That absolutely does not happen at an organization like arsenal with all those doctors and all of those player performance people and darren burgess by the way spends the day with the team he leads the warm-up now he is in that dressing room i promise you if mesut Erzil has got the sniffles and he is within 100 yards of that dressing room darren burgess is pushing him away <laughs> probably pushing him in- into an armored car and telling him to fuck off Right? If he's ill, he's not in the dressing room. It's as simple as that. And I think Emery was, you know, and, and we know that Emery doesn't quite probably have the language skills to really talk around these subjects quite yet. So I think it's quite clear something has gone on. Um, and like we said earlier, you know, eggs get broken in organizational change. But I've written about this for this week, so I'll let the other guys talk about that. Mm -hmm. But to give you you the kind of color, uh, Joao's word is absolutely 100% trustworthy. He has no reason to lie about this. This is not really what he does. It's not his job. His job does not depend on getting information like this. And if he got it, that's because, in my view, Arsenal aren't really trying to protect it that much. And when they say something like, "Oh, he's ill," instead of "Oh, he had a tight hamstring or a tight calf," um, then to me it means they're they're not really they're they're not quite hanging him out to dry, but they're not exactly taking him inside either. If that makes
1: sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say this: of course, he could have bad information. That is totally possible. I mean, a lot of good journalists we were given bad information about Mikel Arteta becoming the next Arsenal manager, including Ornstein. Um, I don't think that means they're bad journalists who are clickbait cunts. I think it means they got information that was wrong, and it happens. What I will say is that you know, people who tell you he should just be dismissed out of hand and it's ridiculous to even entertain what he said, that's as much wish-casting as anything— um, mm-hmm. the decision to dismiss someone because you don't like what they're reporting or they haven't reported on this before, um, you know, is certainly a decision you can make, but I, I think it reflects a bias just as much. Clive, one of the things that there's been a really interesting debate about on Twitter, Um, I know, hard to imagine, but it, but it's happening. I think it's really interesting. Um, And, and I'll, I'll go to the Arscast, actually, because I thought uh, Andrew made a great point on the Arscast, talking about how, In the summer, Emery talked about Ozil and said, we're here to help him. This is his family now. And just after this game, we're here to help him. This is his family now. And these are the kinds of comments that you don't just make about every regular player. You know, There's clearly a managing of this player. So one of the things I want to ask you is just, how much of Emery's job is to manage Mesut Ozil as our highest paid, biggest star at the club? And how much of Emery's job is to not manage Mesut Ozil and instead manage the club? And whatever happens with Ozil, so be it.
2: I think a big part of Amy's job is to manage people. Simple as that. You've got elite footballers with elite talent, elite athletes, all at an elite football club, and you have a group of massive egos to get to that level, trust me, you have to have one. And he has to manage people. And some of that will be tactical, some of that will be emotional, some of that will just be organizational and people management. It's a big part of coaching. You know, I, I do a bit of coaching. I'm a much better people coached and I am a coach coach if you see what I mean yeah. it's always about extracting those intangibles from individuals by understanding the game and understanding how to deploy them understanding the individual emotionally and where he feels comfortable that's a big part of the game I sort of had a, a brief clumsy attempt when I was talking about overcoaching recently and the reason why I wanted to go down that path is that the next development for me in football is watching mm-hmm how players cope with the stress of top-level sport. I think the game has changed massively, and I think coach's job is to create a place where they can perform, where they can be accountable, and where their jobs are almost reduced so they feel comfortable on the football pitch. And I think that applies to Mr Ozil. I think it applies to many, many other players. I just think it's where it's going, Elliot. I think you get some people who are not footballers that struggle with the stress of social media and have to come off and they they're not in the spotlight Right? And so, and they come off social media because they can't take the abuse, the chat. It just becomes too much for them. And then you add that to a football context. You add that to the goldfish bowl, which hit the game. It's a new soap opera in life. And then why would you expect young men to cope with this perfectly every single time? It's why I got a bit angry with the crowd at the weekend. I think we have to be far more sympathetic. Like I can hear people say, hey, Clive, they get paid on 50 grand a week, blah, blah, blah. So what? If you don't feel right, it's not going to... It's not going to come out right. I know one thing that happened at the weekend, whether the story is true or not. I hope it is true. I hope it exactly happened as it happened because We need to sort this out. It needs to be addressed. And the fact he came to the dressing room, I think it's brilliant. Because maybe he thought, you know what, I reacted wrongly the day before. I'm going to come back and show my solidarity. I'm not in the squad, but I'm going to show my face. And that's to show everybody else I need to change my behavior. So I actually hope it happened exactly as people (laughs) are surmising. Because we do need to really find out really quickly who's on board who's not we need to blow this up you've heard me say it before we need to blow it up and the quicker we find out who's on board the better because january is going to be massively football club because we cannot have three to four years outside the champions league and that's where we're heading unless we address these points really really quickly
1: i think that's well said and look i mean for the past few seasons if you were manager of madrid first and foremost you were manager of cristiano ronaldo manager of barca The manager of Lionel Messi, first and foremost. Manager of PSG, Unai Emery. Ask him, what was the job being PSG manager last year? First and foremost is managing Neymar. That sucks. That's hard, and it doesn't always work. But it is reality that the biggest stars, the highest paid players, you've got to get them on board for a few reasons. Because other players look to them. You know, in some instances, some instances other players don't like them. I mean, I don't know if players like Cristiano Ronaldo, but if he wasn't on board at Madrid, they couldn't have achieved what they did. So... I don't see us achieving a whole hell of a lot if Ozil doesn't get on board and perform well. It also becomes a huge problem if you have this much of your money tied up in a player that you can't get the most out of. So there's a lot of reasons we need to get the best out of Ozil. And part of the management job, and I think you said it so well, is managing egos. Clive, you have to to be able to do that. So, Paul, I I mean, two quick questions for you. First and foremost, do you believe, forget what you know, do you believe that deep down there is kind of an issue here? Or do you just think, Ozo gets sick sometimes and we're all reading too much into it.
4: I think very probably there's an issue here. Uh, Very probably it went down as we're hearing at least 80% approximation to what we've heard Um, and that it is what it is.
1: Yeah, and so, I mean, for you, how important is it for Arsenal that Emery get his hands around this and get it corrected? I
4: don't know, really. Um, I think it is more important that we do what we're doing and that these sparks and fireworks we're seeing are, as as Tim had said, there's going to be some of this stuff. Uh, I mean, coming into this season, my big concern was how do you develop a system around the, the name brand players, the big players that we can't uh, crack the code on, the Chaka Ramsey issue, the... The Ozil issue, and and my what I wanted to see was for the manager to basically throw everybody off the, clean, the team sheet and start putting them back in, as opposed to these are the first names on the team sheet. So, uh, I mean, there are te- Spurs has gone a long way with players that were not fucking uh, world name brand players to progress. And yes, we've got a lot of money tied up in this guy. Yeah, he can still play a big role for us. Maybe he'll become central to how we play. But I think it's best... There's no way Emery can impose his style while making Ozil continuously, a continuous thread of Ozil from day one, central to the team sheet. So he had to come out. He has to eat a certain degree of humble pie, relearn the role. I mean, Aguero uh, basically got bumped from City, um, and had to, he got his chance after injury with uh, Gabriel Jesus and had to relearn the expectations of the manager, which is working both sides with the ball. And Ozo's going to have to eat some humble pie and decide whether he wants to do it or not. Uh, but I wouldn't drop Mikatarian. If we want Obama Yang and Lacazette in, there's your front three. Uh, he's not going to be either the two pivots. That leaves one one place in the middle of the park. It's Ramsey Ozel, isn't it? <laughs> it yeah, comes back down or, to that. <laughs> and or Gundu, you know, it's not necessarily not Gunduzi taking one of sure. those three spots. So, but between uh, Ramsey and Ozel, be-
1: one of them's on three hundred and fifty grand a week for the next few years, and one of them's at the end of his contract. <laughs>
4: Yeah, but what's I agree with all of that. The, the heartening part of it is, unlike at PSG, Emery must be perceiving the club has given him full backing to do whatever he needs to do with the star players. And he's just wondering about what combinations work best, which is, you know, that's the upside of it. Yeah, he's clearly demonstrating he has backing and that he's at least the club saying let's get out of his fucking way and let him get on with working it and he's yanking people at halftime putting people in at halftime you know Ramsey off the bench fucking great
1: yeah it's funny you know I hate Jose Mourinho the filthy cunt but one thing that he was known for is showing up at a club and taking a favorite player that was a big player at the club and just sacking him off just being like I don't need you uh Juan Mata at Chelsea comes to mind I think he had won their player of the season he was one of the beloved players there and Jose Rock back up there and was like, I don't need you go away. Um, yep. You know, and, and sometimes you do have to do that to upset the balance. Tim, I want to finish with you on this point. All of us gave a full throated defense of Mestad and what he's been through this summer. Um, I, I think it's very unpleasant and unseemly. Some of the stuff he has faced. Having said mm-hmm. that, mesodozo also has blessings in his life that all of us and all of the listeners could only dream of having. That doesn't mean he can't go through hard times, but I'd be willing to bet all of us on mm-hmm. this podcast have gone through Very hard times. Everyone listening to this podcast has gone through hard times without a fraction of the resources, the support, the opportunity, and the blessings that Mesut has. So my question to you is, what is the right balance between providing empathy, sympathy, understanding for the condition of a professional footballer who has a brilliant life but does face hardships Mm -hmm. and at the other end of the spectrum maybe saying, you know what, I get on with it every fucking day, get on with it. Like what is... What is the right balance yeah. in your mind between the empathy and the expectation?
3: Yeah, it's, it's difficult without knowing the exact detail on the player and the exact emotional impact and the exact toll that it's taken. I think I said when we recorded over the summer that I didn't exactly expect to see Meza Erzul coming out of this with a clenched fist um Mm -hmm. because it's just not the type of guy he is um right and that that's not a criticism that's not me and that's not me even casting aspersions on his character it's not the type of person i am either um quite frankly you, you can't change somebody's character um and, you know, there's there's light and shade and there's good and bad. And uh, Ozil just doesn't strike me as the kind of guy, you know, he strikes me as the, the kind of guy that might think, you know, might contemplate on it. And whether it de- affects his performances, I, I wasn't too sure either way. But I didn't necessarily think that what we'd get would be a kind of, I'm going to show you, you bastards, because <laughs> that's not who that's not who Ozil is. When has he ever played like that? Even when, you know, life's great and he's in a good mood. That's just not who he is. Um, that said, like I say, it's delicate because we don't know the exact toll and impact and things like that. I, I think the the minimum expectation is that you turn up for work. <laughs> um, if if you turn up and your performances are a little bit subpar and you know it's potentially weighing on your mind a little, well, you know that's that's because you're human, and you know that's the manager's job to help manage that and his teammates and his peers and colleagues um and you know we've got lots of we've got lots of great psychologists um at the club and things like that who who work on these things you know these details aren't players aren't just left to to kind of look after these things themselves if they don't want to um that said the minimum expectation is that you turn up to work That, um and again like you say we're some information has been disseminated but we're only getting that from one side and we probably like paul said we probably still don't know a hundred percent of the detail but i mean i think it's fair to say you don't say i'm not sitting on the bench this weekend fuck off i'm not training tomorrow um you don't do that that's that's you know, that I think that's the minimum expectation. The minimum expectation is that you turn up to work and, and, you know, you, you try and get through it the best way you can. And different people will have different ways of doing that. Um, but unless, you know, you're again, just thinking of a more kind of conventional professional environment, unless you're like actually signed off with, you know, which, which does happen in real life, you know, you're signed off with stress and things like that. Um, unless that's happened which it doesn't really sound like it has here it sounds like this is an altercation and it you know you can only speculate how much uh, what happened over the summer plays into this but we're kind of guessing there's no reason to believe really that it has we're just kind of we're guessing and we're trying to construct narratives because we don't really know because there's an information void there so we're going ah mm, well you know maybe he's a bit down about what happened in the summer and that that's perfectly possible and it might even be probable but we're completely guessing we have no idea um but like i said that said the minimum expectation is you don't stick you don't give your boss the v sign and say i'm not turning up to work tomorrow
1: yeah and and look let's put it this way if you have an ankle injury right if your ankle hurts you play if your ankle is sprained you don't play Right, Mm. There are gradations of injury, some of which you can play through and some of which you can't. I would say with mental wellness, mental health, there is a similar gradation. If you're sad, if you're stressed, you play. If you are clinically depressed, you probably don't play and you treat that because it's very, very serious. I think invoking depression when you don't know it is hugely disrespectful to people that are afflicted with it and totally yep. undermines an appreciation and understanding of how serious that mental health condition is and is shameful behavior. Um, you know, to, to just diagnose that out of thin air is, is absolutely reprehensible and shouldn't be done. Um, you know, and I, I will say, look at Pam Rittisacker. gave a very interesting and open and honest interview last season you guys remember it where he talked about how yeah. much he has struggled through his career with stress and how he would almost you know he'd throw up before games permanent sacker won world cups fa cups played every game he could captained arsenal i mean until he was too injured too old but the point is he clearly had less than grade a 100 mental health during his playing career it affected him it's a very stressful environment but He also said he wouldn't change a thing, that he'd go back and do it again. So these guys are under tremendous pressure. That comes with the job. All of us have challenges in our life and all of us get up every day and confront them. And so I don't think it's not empathetic to say, mess it, I get that you're going through a hard time, but you owe us professionalism and you're compensated for it. If it's something more serious, fine. And by the way, if people are saying, oh, well, he has an immune system issue, he has an autoimmune problem, and so he is sick a lot. I mean, sure, could be. Strikes me as a little weird that we would sign him up to the contract we did knowing that but again as tim w- said well there is an information void there that we can't fill uh so we'll see what happens we'll see how it goes i do think mesozo is a crucial part of this team we have made him a crucial part of the team with the money we paid him he is at its core a very very talented player and hopefully one that emery can get the best out of so i think we should leave it there uh pushing an hour and 45 minutes as usual uh despite our best intentions but paul's on twitter in my pants thanks Pause woo uh, Tim's on Twitter at Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter at PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. This is what it's all about, everybody. Passion. Passion. People care about this stuff. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with being very emotional about it, um, as long as at some level that emotion doesn't overcome your ability to be rational about it. Um, I know it does for me most of the time. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner, Give us a five-star review if you don't mind. Um, if you do mind... Give someone else a one-star review and pretend you gave it to us. Uh, Go to our Patreon, sign up, get great content, get our undying love. You have it anyway just for listening. And, uh, you know, if you do go there, though, later this week in the spotlight, Hector Bellerin will be the episode that goes up. And all of these episodes show up totally ad-free, although then you wouldn't get to hear about Beer 52, which is clearly the greatest craft beer service in the world. In any event, uh, we really appreciate you listening. Uh, We'll come back with more this week, and we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10, Cardiff 0.